we have walked through just a, just a brief, brief recap. I, these messages, uh, there's so much to share, so many good things to share. I, you know, I, I try to get to all of it, and I simply can't. But let's just recap real quick. We had the church at Ephesus. They did some really good things. They contended for the faith. They, they guarded sound doctrine. But they lost their love that they had at first. They, they had somewhere along the way forsaken their first love. And, and guys, we, we've got to maintain both as um, faithful believers in Jesus Christ. We stand for truth. We contend for the faith. We, we, we guard sound doctrine. But we can't lose our love for Christ. We can't lose our compassion for others. So what good does it do if we have all the right answers and stand for truth and we're, and we're rude and crude and, and jerks to people? Like, obviously, that's just not Christ-like. And so that's kind of, I think, part of what Ephesus was struggling with. And there is a content, there is a, a faction of the church you know, in, in the world today, and especially here in America, that you've got some groups out there that, man, they, they have the right doctrine. They stand on the truth. I mean, they preach the Bible, but, but they lack a lot of compassion. Somewhere along the way, their hearts grew cold and that's a very dangerous place to be. So we never want to be that church that sacrifices love for Christ and love for others just for the sake of standing on sound doctrine. We've got to hold both, right? Then we went and to, looked at the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. There's been more Christians killed in the name of Christ in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. There are more Christians being killed right now than any other time in history. We understand that right now, of course, that letter was to the believers in Smyrna, but that letter is was was projected and, and, and prophetically given beyond the church at Smyrna to the believers who are in the world today. And we understand that the persecuted church is a real serious issue in our world today. We need to be mindful of that. We need to be prayerful for our brothers and sisters who are suffering all over the world. And we need to be ready for persecution ourselves because it's coming. And then last week we looked at the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. And really, the, the way I boil that down is it's, it's kind of representative of the worldly church. And if we're not careful, we will compromise holiness and compromise uh, what a biblical church looks like in order to look more like the what? The, the more like the world. And then because, you know, if we're not careful, we'll start to look more like the world in order to try to be attractive and appealing to the world. And all of a sudden, we look up and our churches look no different than the world. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be as well, where we allow that compromise to come in. And guys, we are to be in the world, to be a light in the world, but we're not to be what? Of the world, okay? So that's kind of the first three churches. And today we're going to look at the church at Thyatira, and I'm calling this church the Tolerant Church. And again, these messages and these themes, they, they overlap some in, in some of these churches. And the reason that's why I believe this, these letters to the seven churches are prophetically given to the church in the last generation is because we see all of this as a complexion. All of these characteristics exist in the church today, here in the West and all over the world. And so that's why we're going to see some overlap when it comes to some of the problems and issues that these churches were having. Uh, but we're also going to see some unique things in this letter today to the church at uh, Thyatira. I'm calling it the Tolerant Church. So there's your map. And you see uh, John was on the island of Patmos, the little black dot there on the island there in the Aegean Sea. And so as we work our way up the map, we've gone Ephesus, we've done Smyrna, Pergamum, and now number four, which was just to the east, southeast of Pergamum, was Thyatira. And uh, we, we're going to have a little bit of a historical background of Thyatira. Again, all the, all the uh, ancient 
Greco-Roman architecture, as I said. Almost every one of these communities had one of these amphitheaters. They, they were very much an entertain-me type culture. Sounds a lot like our, our culture today, right? I mean, they, they valued it, uh, athletics and Olympic games and arts and drama and music and all these kind of things. And, and that's kind of, you know, we set up our stadiums today so that we can worship at the idols of these very same things. And so uh, we, we're going to see that. Um, in every one of these churches. So just a little bit of a brief background. The uh, best we can tell, this Thyatira was named by a Syrian ru ruler named Nicator. He named the city after his daughter. Um, it was a very popular military stronghold. Uh, it was a city of commerce and trade. Uh, if you know anything about Acts 16 and Lydia, Paul runs into Lydia in Philippi, but it says Lydia was a trader of Good. She, she, she was a trader of purple uh, fabrics, which were very valuable in that day. And uh, she was from Thyatira. And so that's about the, the extent of what we know, biblically speaking, other than this letter here to the church uh, at Thyatira. Okay, so these are your seven design elements that every single letter has to every single church. And the Lord Jesus is the author, and he's that's why it's red letter in your Bible, because these, these are the words of Jesus speaking directly to the churches. So we've touched on the name, a little bit of a historical background. We'll look at the title that Christ chooses for himself. There's usually a commendation. Then there's usually a concern. You know, this is what you're doing good. This is what you're doing bad. Uh, one of the things that I want you to pay attention to, most of the churches were surprised with the Lord's uh, evaluation of where they were. The ones that were doing really poorly, um, you know, they thought they were doing well. And the Lord's like, you know, you think you're doing well, but you're really not. And then those who maybe thought they were struggling or maybe it was worse than what they thought it was, the Lord came back and said, you know what, you're really doing better than, than you think. And that, that should be a good kind of sobering wake-up call for us because sometimes what we think we're doing or how we're doing isn't necessarily uh, what is reality. So, so many times what we think, where we think we are is not where the Lord sees us as where we truly are. And so we should be very humble and, and very, it's very sobering for us as a local church to make sure that we see ourselves in light of God and his word, right? So let's go to the title of Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and read the entire letter to the church at Thyatira, just so that you kind of get the context, and then we'll come back and jump in together. Okay, it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Hey, can we back off the, uh, again, a little bit of a feedback back there. Thank you. I know your service and patient endurance so that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all churches, listen, all the churches will know that I am he. Who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. 
Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken into pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we we pause to acknowledge the sacredness of your word. Father, help us to understand your word by your spirit. Lord, knowing that no prophecy of scripture comes by man's own interpretation, Lord, but that all holy men of God who prophesied, Lord, were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, Lord, you are the one who both reveals and interprets Scripture for us. And so, Lord, help everything that is said and done here today, Lord, be all for your glory according to your will and according to your word. And I just pray that you would have mercy upon us, Lord, as we study these very relevant letters to the churches and as they apply to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Revelation 2.18, here's the title, and this is interesting. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God. This is the only time the title Son of God is used in the book of Revelation. I think it's kind of interesting. Of course, we know of Jesus is obviously the Son of God. And so he has eyes flaming of fire, uh, speaking of his, his uh, omnipresence. Uh, you know, God sees everything. You know, he, he knows everything. And, and we need to be reminded of that. And then his feet that are burnished like bronze, symbolizing, you know, the feet of the Lord is always synonymous with his judgment. He's coming to tread. I just woke some of you up, didn't I? He's coming to tread. He's coming to stomp. He's coming to wage war against the wicked. And when it's talking about his feet are burnished bronze, he's coming in fiery judgment. So that's, that's kind of the picture that is set up here for the title of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the commendation that the Lord gives to uh, the church at Thyatira. So he says this. He says, I know your works and your love and faith, your service and patient endurance. Again, they were under persecution as well. Almost every one of these churches was suffering persecution of some type. And that your latter works exceed that, exceed the first. And so, you know, we kind of have a report card here for the church at Thyatira. And, and basically the Lord's like, hey, you're showing some signs of improvement. Like, I, I know your works, you're patient, you're serving, uh, you, you're showing love and faith, and, and you're getting better at those things. And so, you know, there is some commendation here uh, for the church in Thyatira. But I want to share this passage of Scripture with you because I think sometimes we, we may forget that um, the Lord doesn't necessarily... Deserve, we don't necessarily deserve the Lord's praise for simply doing the things that we're what? Supposed to be doing anyway. You know, how many of you have kids out there, right? And it's like, take out the trash, keep your room clean, keep the grass cut, do your chores, and the kids want a, want a big old what? Pat on the back. And it's okay. Let's, let's give them praise and we should commend them and words of affirmation. I understand that. But at the end of the day, that's what they're what? Supposed to be doing anyway. Like, you want me to really give you a bunch of praise for doing exactly what you're already supposed to be doing anyway? Like, hey, if you want to go above and beyond and let's, you know, step it up and do things that we don't ask you to have to do, right? I mean, and that's kind of what I think the Lord is saying right here to the church at Thyatira. Look at what he says in Luke 17. I love this. He says, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him who has come in from the field, come once and sit down to eat? But no, he will not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper 
and gird yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk, and then afterward you will eat and drink. Now look at what he says. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. This is Jesus speaking. So likewise, you, speaking to us now, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Okay? Now, again, I'm not saying we shouldn't give words of affirmation and commend people for doing a good job and all those kind of things. But at the end of the day, I think sometimes we think that we're supposed to get all this admiration and praise for simply being an obedient Christian. And I think that's part of what's going on here at the church at Thyatira because the Lord's like, hey, listen, I know your works and you're doing better than you used to do. But guys, at the end of the day, you're only doing what you're supposed to do because now I have a big concern because, see, the church at Thyatira had allowed something else to creep in that they were not supposed to let creep in. He says, but I have this against you that you tolerate, underline that word, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to Idols, And so now we begin to see what we're, what we're, the problem and the concern that was going on in the church at Thyatira is that there was a spirit of tolerance, a spirit of passivity that had infiltrated the church. And I think it had infiltrated the leadership of the church and allowed this false prophetess to come in who the Lord calls Jezebel. Now, whether or not that was her real name, we don't know. But I do think there was a real prophetess, a real woman who had infiltrated the church and she was seducing and teaching false doctrine and the Lord just calls her Jezebel. And that probably wasn't her real name, but he, get, he intentionally uses that name to provoke something in us to say, wait a minute, I've heard that name before. Maybe I need to go back and find out who is this Jezebel and what is this all about. And so she introduced uh, pagan practices of sexual immorality and idolatry. Kind of what we looked at last week with the church at Pergamos, right? The, the, the teaching of Balaam, uh, who led Balak to cause the children of Israel to stumble, to commit what? Sexual immorality, to commit pagan idolatry. Kind of the same thing that's happening here, okay? So let's, let's take a minute to talk about Jezebel. So if you want to do a, a good study on Jezebel, you're going to have to go to 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21. But let's, let's kind of set the context. We've got to know who she was in order to understand how she's still operating. And, I, and again, I'm using the, the, the female pronoun she, and you're going to find out why in just a minute. And I'm going, to, I'm going to cover all that in just a second. But right now, she was a prophetess, and her name was Jezebel. So who was Jezebel? Jezebel was a pagan priestess. Okay, and if you have your, your listening guides, guys, you, you can fill in your blanks. Jezebel was a pagan priestess, and she was a wicked queen of Israel who led the entire kingdom to worship Baal and his consort, Ashtaroth. Okay, and again, this is coming. You can read the whole story when you're looking at 1 Kings. We're going to look at some scriptures here in just a second. But let me give you some background on this, this wicked priestess named Jezebel. Here's the irony. Her name literally means chaste. Or pure. But she's anything but, okay? She was the wife of King Ahab. Um, interestingly enough, it was King Solomon who began intermarrying with pagan uh, queens 
and the pagan queens introduced all kinds of uh, pagan practices in the kingdom of Israel underneath Solomon. So Ahab is basically kind of following in the footsteps of Solomon, Solomon many years later. But this was strictly forbidden in the law. Obviously, you were not supposed to intermarry with foreign uh, uh, Wives, and because the Lord told the Israelites, don't do this because when you marry foreign wives, they're going to introduce their gods to you and they're going to cause you to stumble. They're going to be like a thorn in your side. And Ahab obviously disregards that and he was nothing more than basically a puppet in the hands of this queen, Jezebel. She was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So that's up in Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon, which is just north of Israel. Uh, they were gross pagan Baal worshipers. Um, she established uh, the Phoenician worship of Baal and Ashtoreth on a grand scale in Israel. At her table were supported no less than 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Ashtoreth. Okay? Y'all remember a few weeks ago when we look at Ephesus, they had the temple to Artemis, Diana there. And I showed you, and again, there's a reason why I want to show you guys, that these pagan gods and goddesses, all they do is take on different what? Names. And so the same goddess who is Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis of the Ephesians is Ashtaroth of Sidonia. And it's the Astarte, Ishtar. They have different names in different cultures and civilizations. It's the same entity, the same spirit that's being worshipped here. And you're going to see that it's very much still at work here today. And so, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to go into the details about the ritual practices of cult prostitution, child sacrifice. I mean, you can imagine everything under the sun that you can imagine that's profane and perverse and wicked. That's what Jezebel introduced to the kingdom of Israel. So they had temples to uh, Ashtaroth, temples to Baal. Uh, you can go read all of the accounts about this is during the time of Elijah the prophet. We know the famous standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Fascinating story. Uh, but anyway, you know, that's, that's a lot of the historical background of what we're going to see with this priestess. And when I say priestess, I, I emphasize that because she was definitely into cult, occult, dark, magic, pagan, you know, uh, idolatry. I mean, they, they used all kinds of wicked, dark, what, what are called the deep things of Satan. We'll get into that in just a second. This stuff is real. Okay, so she was a master priestess at these things. Let's look at a couple of passages here from 1 Kings. 1 Kings 16, uh, look at what it says. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This was serious stuff. And so, again, Baal and Asherah, 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 they kind of hand in hand. Baal was kind of the male god figure. Asherah was his consort, the female counterpart. And Jezebel introduced both of them, all right? Let's go to the next slide. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. So one of the first things Jezebel did when she, when she assumed power there in Israel is that she started to kill off all of God's prophets, right? Just eliminate the competition, right? And this is the story of Elijah, who thought that he was the only one left, 
And it says, Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel. He's talking to Ahab now in, in 1 Kings 18. He says, I've not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Listen, she had a special place in, in the palace for these prophets. So you can just kind of begin to see how rampant this idolatry was in ancient Israel. But there's something deeper behind the Queen Jezebel that I'm going to call the Jezebel spirit. Okay? Behind every evil person working in the world, behind every evil institution and evil government working in the world, there is always a supernatural spirit or entity, what? Behind them that is manipulating, controlling, and influencing them. And that's what we're going to call the Jezebel spirit today, okay? So what is the Jezebel spirit? The Jezebel spirit despises authority and primarily uses the arts of sexual seduction to gain control, total control over men in positions of power and influence, okay? So that's why I believe that it's important that we understand the male-female sexual component of this whole uh, Jezebel spirit is because the way that culture and society is set up and the way that God ordains society, whether it be the family or the church or government and institutions, men are in positions of what? Leadership. Okay, men are in positions of leadership. Now, I know we're in the 20, uh, 21st century and things are a little bit different today, and that's great, I understand that there are many women now who hold positions of power and influence. So this isn't just about men and women. It can, this spirit can manifest in both men and women. But just traditionally speaking, we do understand that men traditionally have held positions of power and influence in government, in family, in church, in institutions, in organizations all over the world. And so when you want to find the Jezebel spirit, you're going to see that there's usually this art of sexual seduction that infiltrates an organization or a home or a family or a church in order for this spirit to gain total what? Control. It's always about control with the enemy. Now, let's talk a little bit about this spirit. I think this spirit is the spirit of Ashtaroth, Ishtar, Astarte. Again, all the different names of this pagan goddess. Let me tell you a little bit about the pagan goddess Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was often depicted as androgynous. Big word. Simply means this. Ashtaroth had both male and female body parts. Ashtaroth was transgender. Ashtaroth was the goddess of the transgender. This is not a new thing that we're dealing with in our culture today. This goes way, way back to Babylonian pagan idolatry. The god of Shiva in India also manifests himself or herself as both male and female. We see this in all kind of different pagan gods and goddesses, and Ashtaroth was no different. So Ashtaroth was the goddess of transgenderism, homosexuality, any type of per sexual perversion. You want, to, you want to find out how to participate in that, you go worship the goddess of Ashtaroth. Okay, so there, there's something deeper here that we're going to see in just a minute is definitely relevant to our time and our culture 
today. So why does the, the, the uh, Jezebel spirit manifest usually in the female form is because, again, like I said, kings and government leaders and corporate leaders and church leaders are typically men, and this art of sexual seduction is how this spirit gains power and control over them. Okay? So the spirit was destroying the church in Thyatira in John's day, and guess what? This very same spirit is actively working in the church today. Amen. This is where we have to be very, very cautious and careful about what's happening in our churches. The Apostle Peter maybe describes the spirit of Jezebel better than anybody else. Look at what he says in 2 Peter 2. He says, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be what? False teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Look at what he says. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. Look at what he says. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority, bold and willful. Guys, this is the spirit of Jezebel. There's always a component of seduction and sexual immorality. And there's always a component of someone who despises authority. They're trying to maintain and take over control. Okay, and then finally he says this. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Amen. This is a description of the Jezebel spirit. Now, this is what's even more dangerous. Is that passive leaders who are more concerned about pleasing people, okay, who are more concerned about prioritizing tolerance. Do you know that there's basically one virtue in our culture today that almost everybody in their culture agrees with? And that's the virtue of what? Tolerance. We're supposed to tolerate everybody. You know? Who am I to say that what you're doing is wrong? If it's true to you, then it's true. If it's true to me, then it's true. But do you know the only place that the virtue of tolerance stops? Christians. Because we can't be what? Tolerated. We're the only people group in this culture that the culture hates and refuses to tolerate. You know, we can tolerate everybody else and all the other things that everybody else is doing. And we're supposed to just say, hey, if that's good for you, good for you. You know, no foul, no harm. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Except for who? Christians. Because there's just one simple thing that we have that the rest of the world doesn't have, and it's called the living Word of God. Amen. And we believe it, and we teach it, and we live by it, and we preach it. And because of that, the rest of the culture, who's supposed to be so tolerant of everybody else, is not tolerant of us. Amen. But passive leaders... Elevate and prioritize tolerance. And if they're trying to please the culture and if they're trying to please people, then they will elevate tolerance above truth and they become easy what? Easy targets for the Jezebel spirit. You know what? This is nothing new under the sun. We see it in the garden, right? You see, Eve gets the blame for falling and being deceived by the devil to disobey God. Who is standing right there with her? 
It was Adam. Adam was there to protect. He was supposed to be a buffer in between his wife and the temptation of the enemy, and yet he was passive. He didn't step in and do his job as the man God ordained him to be the leader and protector of his wife, and he failed because he was passive. Guys, this is the sin of men from the very beginning. We, we are naturally inclined to be passive when we need to be step up and be leaders and men and protectors and providers of our homes and of our churches and of our communities. Amen. This is the sin from the beginning. So this is why there's no wonder so many people have fallen to this seductive spirit. I want you to think about this for just a second. The wisest man who ever lived, apart from Jesus, the wisest man who ever lived, the richest man who ever lived, the strongest man who ever lived, and even a man after God's own heart, all fell to who? The Jezebel spirit. Solomon, Samson, David. It doesn't matter how wise you are, how rich you are, how smart you are, even how spiritual you are. Any of us are susceptible to fall to this demonic spirit that is actively working to take control over our homes and our churches and our lives. That's how, that's how serious, guys, this really is. So let's look at this. Now, this is what's interesting is that when you look at Mark chapter 6, we have another very vivid example of the Jezebel spirit. Now, what's so interesting is that John the Baptist was a forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, he was a type or a shadow of Elijah. Remember, who's supposed to come to declare uh, the way, prepare the way of the Lord before he comes? Elijah. Now, I do believe Elijah will return. He's one of the two witnesses in my estimation. When we get to Revelation 11, we're going to find out more. Elijah's going to come back. To, to be one of the witnesses to prepare the way of the Lord. But when John the Baptist came on the scene, a lot of people were asking him if he was who? Elijah. And he said, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus kind of said, well, he is kind of like a Elijah. He, he's kind of in the spirit of Elijah. So it's interesting that Elijah had to face Queen Jezebel, and they were mortal enemies. And now you have John the Baptist, and he runs into a very similar Jezebel spirit in Queen Herodias. Look at what it says in Mark 6. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Man, this is, this is some work, piece of work right here, right? So like she'd been married to Philip, and she's like, no, nah, I'm tired of him. I'm going to go marry Herod. So they're, they're all mixed up in, you know, this is Jerry Springer, man. And, and it gets even worse, right? For John had been saying to Herod, hey, Herod, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Like, that's wrong. So he was willing to stand for the what? Truth. That's, 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 why, no, that's why he wasn't tolerated by the Spirit. And Herodias had a what? A grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Mm, what am I going to do about John the Baptist? I can't stand him because he's calling me out on my sin. So she says, I'm going to use the Jezebel spirit. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men. Pick up on it, right? These are what? Men. They're having a party. They're getting drunk. Oh, by the way, when, Her when Herodias' daughter came in and what? She danced. Guys, this is not ballet. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, this, this is provocative. Okay, she strips basically in front of Herod and all his people. And Herod being drunk and compromised and passive, look at what he says. 
Oh, the king said, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. And then he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I'll give it up to half of my kingdom. And look at what she does. The daughter was trained well. And she went and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Ah, here's my chance. Go to the king now that he's put himself out there in front of all his buddies and say, hey, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And boy, it just cut Herod to the heart because he kind of liked John. But it was too late because he was passive and he was indulgent and he was seduced by sexual immorality. And the Jezebel spirit ended up putting John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. That's what I'm talking about. Passive men set themselves up as easy targets. Now, a lot of people may read this and say, well, does that mean that, that there's no place for a woman to have the role of prophecy in the church. And I just want to, I want to bring this to your attention real quick because I think it's important that we look at this, guys. Um, the, the Bible speaks a lot about the gift of what? The gift of prophecy. You know, Romans 12, if prophecy, then, then prophesy a portion to your faith. In 1 Corinthians 12, that, that, that is one of the gifts of the Spirit in the church. We know in Ephesians 4, it says that God gave pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists and apostles to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So prophecy is definitely a legitimate gift in the church. And so somebody may say, well, you're just saying that only men, because this, this, this prophetess Jezebel, it's not that she was a woman is what made her so bad. It's that she was leading men and seducing them to fall away from the Lord Jesus Christ. She was teaching false doctrine. That's what was so bad about her doctrine. It wasn't the fact that she was a woman because the scriptures talk about many different female prophetesses. Did you know this? Miriam is called a prophetess, Exodus 15. Deborah, one of the judges. Hannah, what a beautiful story. The mother of Samuel, she was a prophetess. Anna, in the book of Luke, uh, when she sees the Messiah... There's four daughters of Philip, the evangelists, who are called what? Prophetesses. And so we understand that there is a gift of prophecy that does apply to women. And so that's not what this is about. This isn't about, you know, women have to keep their place now. I will say this. The the office of pastor, teacher, elder, elder pastor, is reserved by God for for men. I I can't see that any other place. That, That is what it says in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that women do not have many different roles and opportunities to bless and to edify the saints and exercise their spiritual gifts. And one of those spiritual gifts could be prophecy. Just to kind of put it out there, I want to make sure you hear me on that, okay? So here's the thing. He says, repent, right? Now, this is where it gets interesting. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This is what's amazing to me, is that even in this gross immorality and perversion, she's leading God's people astray. She's causing this church to be judged. God is still gracious and patient. He says, I gave her what? I gave her time. Like, can you, think, can you imagine how long-suffering and patient and merciful God is? You know, he's more merciful and long-suffering and patient than we are. He gave her ample time to what? To repent, but she would not. And he says, okay, well, there's some serious consequences that are going to come because she would not repent. She says, I'm going to, he said, I will give each one of you according to your works. Jesus said it this way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? 
to lose his own soul, forfeit his own soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Listen to what he says. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will what? Repay each person according to what he has done. Guess what? That includes you and me. Amen. We will be judged. We must give an account of our life. And we will be rewarded accordingly, and we will be judged accordingly. And some of us are going to suffer a tremendous sense of loss when we stand before the Lord of glory and we realize that we wasted so much time and resources and energy and opportunity instead of being faithful to the Lord. Amen. Guys, I don't want any of us to be, fought, to be caught in that situation. Paul said it this way, is that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's talk about this for just a second. God is grieved when we misrepresent him in his name, and there are what? There are serious consequences when we fail to repent. There are serious consequences. The Bible even talks about a sin that may lead unto what? This is one of those fascinating topics. I get questions about this all the time. What is the sin that leads unto death? Well, guess what? He's talking to Jezebel and her followers, her disciples. Her, the, you know, the, she had people that had kind of bought into her teaching, and so they're kind of the, she's infiltrated the church. And apparently, the leadership of the church failed to confront her, or maybe they tried to confront her, or maybe the leaders in the church had been seduced by her. So they're all caught up in the same thing, and so they're unwilling to really address the issue in the church. And so she has followers, she has disciples, and it says there are serious consequences because not only is Jezebel under the fear of judgment, but even her followers are as well. And so we start looking at this, and look at what the Lord says to Jezebel and her followers. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Serious stuff, guys. Serious stuff. Now, are these her biological children? I don't know. I think probably more than anything else, these are probably her spiritual children. These are probably the people who had gotten in bed with her, so to speak. They had become to follow her and practice these immoral things that she was introducing to the church. And so this is a very, very bad thing, guys. So what is the sin that leads unto death? Look at what it says in 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So, so there is a distinction here. I, I'm not 100% sure exactly what the distinction is, but John tells us that there are sins that don't lead to death, which means there are sins that what? That lead to death. Okay, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Hmm. That's strong, right? So is it, is it like when people get to a hardened point where they refuse to repent of immorality that they're so stubborn and they're so willfully defiant of the Lord that God is basically saying when they get to that point, you know, you don't even really need to what? Pray for that anymore because they've, they've, they've made their choice. You know, so you kind of start saying, what is this? Like, does it mean that people lose their salvation? No, I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think we're talking about believers in the context of the church but this is what I think is happening here. There apparently are persistent sins, and I think that you can put those sins in a couple of different categories. I think the sin of sexual immorality and idolatry. 
Those are the two primary sins because that's the two primary sins of Jezebel. When we're experiencing sexual immorality and we're living in a life of sexual immorality and idolatry and we refuse to what? Repent, then there seems to be a scriptural precedent that that, that can lead to a believer's what? Physical death. In other words, God is saying, hey, I've reached a point where I've let you muddle, mar my name. You've, you've brought disgrace to my name for only so long. I can't let you do it anymore. And I'd just rather go ahead and just take you out of this world than to allow you to keep living in perpetual sin and putting, bringing disgrace to my name. Amen. I think that's what's happening right here. And that's the warning to the church at Thyatira. It's like if you continue to do this and you fail to repent, you're going to go on a sickbed. And you may, your children may die because of this type of rebellion and immorality. There are other scriptures that talk about this as well. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 5. Again, there's a connection to the sexual immorality. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his what? Flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, this guy who refuses, he claims to be a believer. By all accounts, he's a Christian. He's, he's wrapped up in an immoral relationship. And, and Paul is saying, listen, you got to turn this guy over. Get him out of your church because his spirit state may still be saved, but we're going to turn him over to Satan to destroy his what? Flesh. That means the guy may what? He may have to die. That's not it. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 11. This is dealing with the Lord's Supper. Don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Let each person examine himself and eat the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. So there is something happening here in the church in Corinth where they were disregarding the Lord's Supper, living in some type of... uh, immoral lifestyle and they were unrepentant and it said some of them were sick and weak and some of them had even what died because of their sin guys we don't need to play around with sin amen i mean this is serious stuff here okay so there's something there that we need to be very aware of now there is a commendation and we're gonna look at the good news after we get through some of the bad stuff right but to the rest of you in thyatira so that tells us that, that Jezebel, the Jezebel spirit had not conquered the whole church, right? There were still some people in the church that remained faithful. Look at what he says. You do not hold to this teaching. You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until you come. So what are these deep things of Satan? Deuteronomy 18. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interpret omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, anyone who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, God is driving them out before you. The Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Guys, do you know why you should not mess with tarot cards and horoscopes and Ouija boards and occult practices and all that kind of stuff. I even think watching some horror movies, and there's just some really deep, dark stuff. You know why the Lord said don't do that stuff? It's not because they don't work. It's because they do. 
because they're very, very powerful. And we open ourselves up when we begin to dabble in these things and we don't realize that the enemy that opens doorways and for, for him to come in and influence and take uh, over you know, parts and control of our life. And so the Lord is saying there are deep things of Satan that Jezebel was introducing to the church that we need to stay clear of, right? Not because they're harmless, because they do most definitely work, all right? And so let's go on here. Um, look, at, look at Ephesians 5. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even speak about these things that they do in what? In secret. So what is, what is, the, what is the deep things of Satan? I'm going to give you one illustration, and I've got to move on. Do you all know what is one of the fastest growing religious movements in America today? It's called Wicca. Modern pagan witchcraft. Matter of fact, if you don't believe me, um, in 2018, the stats were like this. Wiccans, who are, this is witchcraft, was doubling in number every 30 months. So about every two years, Wicca is doubling in number. Uh, there aren't any churches growing that fast. Not in America. Churches like this in America kind of going like this. Wicca, witchcraft, on the other hand, is what? It's blowing up. And that doesn't even include... Things like spiritualism, New Age movements, Druids, Neo-Pagans, all this environmental stuff. It's all connected. And so we have to understand that there are probably tens of millions of people in the Amer just in America today who are practitioners of the deep things of Satan. And if you don't think that it's here, it's probably in every church there's some type of that influence that we have to be aware of. In every community, in every organization, again, because at the end of the day, this is the Jezebel spirit who is at work. Guys, this is what's happening in our culture. I wish I had more time to talk to you about that, but I've got to move on. So what's the prophetic profile? How do we look at what's happening with the church at Thyatira in John's day, and how does it apply to what's happening in our day? All right? It's the tolerant church. Now let me give you a couple of examples of how we become tolerant as Christians, and we start to compromise truth to fit in, to please people. So we don't want to rock the boat. Uh, we don't want to be considered to be offensive to anybody, right? It's almost like the worst thing that you can do in our culture today is to what? Offend somebody. That's like the worst thing. I mean, it's like if you're, you're a bigot, you're a Nazi, you know, that you're a racist, you know, they just throw these words out there like, you know, and, and, and people are like, oh, I don't want to be a Nazi, I don't want to be a racist, so I better not ever say that again, Right? That's the way that we are attacked in our culture to condition us to remain silent and to shut up. But when we grow tolerant, we are manifesting the Jezebel spirit in our Christian lives and in our churches. And so here it is. God's people cannot tolerate sin in attempting to, in attempting to coexist in this wicked and perverse generation no matter what it costs. How many of you ever seen that sticker? Popular movement. Hey, it's all about coming together. Right? The thing you have to understand is that the cross there is in the T, coexist. The T is supposed to be the cross. But in order to follow that cross, you can't be a biblical Christian because you have to embrace all these other movements like Islam and paganism. Notice the little eye up there and the little pentagram with the circle around it? That's the Wiccan symbol. Wicca. So in order to coexist, you got to be the E right there represents transgenderism. You see what I'm saying? So this is the movement that we have in our world today. 
interfaith movements and things of that nature. And then this is the biggest one. It's the LGBTQ agenda. And if you're not paying attention, I've been talking about this for years now, but it is so close and so raw in our face right now, guys, that we are on the precipice of our entire culture changing because right now in Washington, there's been legislation introduced called the Equality Act. And if you don't know anything about the Equality Act, go read about it. Go look at the Liberty Council. Great website. They're going to give you all the information about what's really happened. The, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act this week. Now it goes to the Senate to see if it's going to pass the Senate. I don't know if it will or not. But if it passes, it will become illegal to discriminate against anyone based on their sexual orientation. And you may think, that's a great thing. No. Because what happens now is that if you're a Christian and you stand up and preach a sermon like I'm preaching today, then you can be criminalized for that. And your church can be what? Shut down. If you're a Christian and you want to stand on Christian values and you want to make sure that we hire Christians in our church and someone who comes from an LGBTQ background wants to come and get hired on staff at our church and we say, no, we can't do that because that's against our convictions and our beliefs, we can get what? Shut down for that now. If the Equality Act passes, and that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The other big thing is the boys, transgender boys, participating in girls' sports. Under the Equality Act, if you're a Christian school and you have a boy who's messed up in the head with gender dysphoria and he thinks he's a girl or wants to be a girl so he can hang out in the girls' locker room, sounds pretty cool for a boy, right? Hey, I can just pretend to be a girl and I'll go shower with the girls. If you're a Christian school under the Equality Act and you say, no, you can't do that because that's not right. We're not going to let you go into the girls' locker room and shower with them because you're a biological boy. As a Christian school, you're no longer protected under the Equality Act. The government can come in and what? Shut you down. We're right there. Now, what are we going to do? Are we going to cave in? Are we going to tolerate the radical agendas that are being pushed upon us in our culture. Beyond that, guys, here's a startling statistic. One in six, this is the last thing that I, I don't know where this came from. I have to go back, and, and, but I've seen this statistic this week. One in six of Generation Z, which is the next generation after millennials, one in six apparently today identify as LGBTQ. That's almost 20%. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, but what I'm trying to get you to understand, guys, is that, listen to me, I will say this once, and I won't have to say it again. This is the, L listen, I don't hate gay people. I want y'all to hear me on this. Sin, sexual sin is sexual sin. Racism is a sin. Greed is sin. All of it is sin. I understand that, but y'all don't understand what's happening in our culture today. There is an agenda that is trying to tell our world and our culture that there is one particular sin that we can't call sin anymore. And that is called sexual immorality. It's called homosexuality, transgender. We're saying, here's the, the push on our culture. We're, we're told that we cannot even call it sin anymore. But the Bible calls it what? The Bible calls it sin. If the Bible calls it sin, guys, I don't have a choice. It doesn't mean I hate you. 
That's not what it means. I love you as an individual and Jesus loves you as an individual and he wants to redeem you out of this lifestyle just like he wants to redeem any of us out of sinful lifestyle. But if you don't wake up and understand there is an agenda, a militant agenda, a radical agenda and they are not going to stop until they silence us. It's not live and let live anymore. They want to silence their critics. They want to silence anybody who is opposed to them. And this is what's happening in the tolerant church today because there are already denominations who have already gone and embraced the LGBTQ agenda. It's already happened. So the ones that don't do it willingly, they're going to come toward for us to force us to do it or they're going to shut us down. Guys, that's, that's reality, okay? And again, I could go on and on and on and talk to you guys about this, but do you know what Jesus said about the, the last days? He said, just like it was in the days of Lot, who went out of Sodom before fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Do you know that Jesus likened the last days before he comes to the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a perverse culture that celebrated sexual sin? Sexual immorality. We have gay pride parades in every city of this country celebrating that which is an abomination to God. There's no other way to say it. That's where we are as a culture. This is the tolerant church. Are we going to be a tolerant church? If, the, if that offends you, this isn't the church for you. I don't know what else to tell you. I love you in the Lord, but if that offends you, this is not the church for you. Because we're not going to compromise on this. Not as long as I'm here. Now y'all can get rid of me or they can come after me or whatever. But as long as I'm here, we're not going to give in to this, guys. Because we cannot tolerate sin if God calls it sin, okay? And we didn't pick this fight, by the way. We didn't pick this fight. They have taken this fight to us. There's always been people who've been gay and transgender. And they've always practiced sexual immorality. We've always had this issue in our problem. We didn't pick this. They brought it to us. So now we have a decision to make. Are we going to stand for truth or are we going to cave and give in like many of the churches are doing all around us? Serious stuff, guys. Serious stuff. I got to finish up. That doesn't even, I didn't even have time to preach on that where the Catholic Church now has a temple, a mosque, and a, um, temple, mosque, and a church in the Middle East where they're trying to do Chrislam. And I, this is just a whole other topic for a whole other subject. All right. Who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule with them with a rod of iron as an earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. Guys, listen, you will rule and reign with Jesus Christ if you overcome in Christ. You will be princes and kings and queens in the kingdom. Think about it. Queen Jezebel wants to offer you a false sense of royalty when Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the true eternal place of ruling and reigning with me in my kingdom. So you will, give, you will have authority to rule and reign in the coming kingdom of God. And again, I could give, I could give you so many passages of Scripture. If we endure, he will reign, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Uh, there's so many passages. I don't have to... Here, I'll, I'll finish with this one, Revelation 20. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You want to reign with Christ? You want to be part of His kingdom and rule and reign with Him? Guys, you overcome 
in Christ. And he says, I'll give you the bright and morning star, which is Jesus. Look at what he says. I'm going to ask our praise team to come up. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. What does it mean that we will get the bright morning star? It means that we get who? We get Jesus. For how long? Forever. I, don't, I think sometimes we think about heaven, we forget the greatest thing that makes heaven heaven is Jesus is there. And we get to behold him and know him and love him and serve him and worship him and talk to him and walk with him forever and ever and ever. And that is the greatest thing that any of us could ever have is the promise of an overcomer in Christ. So that's heavy, right? Guys, I want you to hear me. The seven letters to the seven churches were written for this generation. Because Jesus, he knows all things. And he knew there's going to come a time when the church right here, Christ Church Bartlett, is going to be forced with a difficult decision to tolerate the culture, to tolerate sin, to give in and cave and back down when the pressure is put on. Or we're going to be called to stand and remain faithful and to say that if God calls it sin, we have to call it sin. And that we can still love people where they are and we can still show compassion to them. We're not here to beat people up. We're not here to condemn people. We're here to offer them the greatest gift of all, which is salvation and forgiveness and a relationship with the one true God so that people can find... Listen, you want to talk about identity? There's no greater place than have your identity in who? In Jesus Christ. I don't want you to have your identity in anything else under the sun. Not your sexuality, not your income, not your job, not your your spouse, not your family. You have your identity in Jesus Christ alone. That is what the gospel offers us. A relationship to have, an opportunity to have a relationship with the one true God. And he gives us our identity. That's what identity is, ultimately. And so guys, I know that's a lot. Please pray for your leaders. Pray for your husbands. Kids, pray for your dads. Do you know how many homes are being destroyed right now by the Jezebel spirit? Do you know how many churches are being destroyed right now by the Jezebel spirit? Do you know how many schools and organizations and institutions? Do you know our federal government and our state government and our local government is infiltrated by the what? The Jezebel spirit? Because Satan wants total control. And if men are not on guard and prepared and praying and standing and they're passive in their leadership, they will become victims, targets of the Spirit. Pray for your leaders. Pray for me. Pray for your elders. Pray for your husbands. Pray for your fathers. Pray for men who are in positions of leadership. This is a serious, serious thing. So as we pray, guys, I'm going to open up this time. We're going to sing one more song. And I love this song because it it basically says this. Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. And may we not give our soul to another. May we not give our soul, bow down to anybody else under heaven but Jesus Christ. And as we sing this, guys, I want you to let God work in your heart and your life. Let him Let him minister to you wherever you are. Whatever you're dealing with right now, whatever emotion or whatever um, 
conviction that you may have right now after this message, a heavy, heavy message, let this psalm minister to your heart. If you need to come here and pray, come pray. If you need to talk to me about salvation, come talk to me. If you need to get on your knees right where you are and pray, do that. But make sure you deal with it right now. Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Father, I can't thank you enough for hiding me behind the cross. Because I'm nobody, Lord. And yet you called me and you've given me your word and you've given me a zeal for the holiness of God. And Lord, I am just as fallen and just as in need of salvation and forgiveness as anybody in this room. So God, I pray that every time I stand to preach, Lord, that you would hide me, that it would be your word that goes forth, not mine, that it would be your spirit that communicates truth and not my opinions. God, but we are in a critical time at our church, Lord. We're in a critical time in our culture, Lord, where there is a spirit at work and it is forcing Men and churches and leaders and husbands and families are forcing them to bow down to this Jezebel spirit, to this tolerant spirit, Lord, because Satan wants control over us. He wants total dominance, and he'll do whatever it takes to get it. But God, the good news is that we don't have to let him. That we, he has no power over us in Christ, Lord, but he only has the authority that we give him. So Father, forgive us of allowing uh, for, for any of us even dabbling in the deep things of Satan. Forgive us for dabbling in the things like pornography. Forgive us of dabbling in the things like sexual immorality. Lord, please stop us now and bring conviction and repentance in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, so that we do not give this spirit any more control over our homes and our churches and our communities. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, and give us clean hands and a pure heart so that we may be able to stand before you when you come and not shrink back in fear. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.